0: Hello and welcome to the Ellis Whittam Employment Law Podcast. My name is James Tamp and I am Director of Legal Services here at Ellis Whitam. During each podcast, I'll be joined by two of my colleagues to discuss the latest employment law news and any recent court decisions that may impact your business or that you may find interesting. This week, I'm joined by Angela Carter, one of our heads of team. Hello Ange. Hi. How are you today? Good, thank you. Good, good, good. And also joined by Caroline Acton, a Senior Employment Advisor. Caroline, are you okay?
1: I'm good, thanks James. Excellent, excellent.
0: Um, Okay, this week we've got three different cases to talk about, one about um, holiday pay, one about disability discrimination, but we're going to start with Caroline, who is going to talk to us about COVID recordings of meetings.
1: Thanks James. So the case I'm looking at today is called Phoenix House Limited against Stockman. So this is an Employment Appeals Tribunal decision on covert recordings. So what the EAT had to consider here was whether a claimant's compensation for unfair dismissal should have been reduced on account that the claimant had covertly recorded a meeting with HR. So in terms of some brief facts and brief background of the case, Miss Stockman was employed in the finance department at Phoenix House. Phoenix House are a charity. Following a restructure, her post was removed and she applied for other roles. She then complained of unfair treatment during the restructure process. And while having a meeting with HR, with the head of HR, she covertly recorded that meeting. However, her covert recording did not come to light until her employment tribunal claim. So the employer had no knowledge of it previously. She was dismissed by Phoenix um, House because they found that her working relationship with senior management had had broken down and she was summarily dismissed. She brought an employment tribunal claim, and part of that claim was for unfair dismissal. The case went to the tribunal, they found that the dismissal was unfair. Then what Phoenix House tried to then argue is that had they been aware of the covert recording, she would have been dismissed for gross misconduct, and therefore tried to argue that her compensation for unfair dismissal should have been reduced to nothing. The tribunal looked at that, and found that as the covert recording was not specifically set out in the charity's disciplinary procedure, and it was not found to be used for entrapment, so she hadn't used it to try and entrap the company, they didn't consider it to be a gross misconduct event. The tribunal therefore reduced the compensation award by 10% to reflect her conduct. Phoenix House then appealed that decision to the Employment Appeals Tribunal, and ultimately the EAT upheld the tribunal's decision, and they found that this should, the circumstances of a covert recording should be looked at in, in a case-by-case basis, and each case should be considered on its own merit, um, as to whether actually the covert recording should be taken into account for gross misconduct or not.
0: Thank you very much. So, um, when I, because I had a look at that one, yeah, um, and I think one of the things that the EAT went out of its way to say was that it's still quite rare for, mm-hmm. a, for an employer to have. Sort of covertly recording a meeting as an example of gross misconduct. Yes, handbook. that's correct. So, do you think if they had that in a disciplinary procedure or a handbook, mm. that would have helped them at all?
1: What was really good with the Employment Appeals Tribunal is they set out some guidance about when covert recording could be considered a gross misconduct or could be considered, you know, more on that level. So, in their guidance, they said what you need to look at as an employer is the purpose of the recording. So, did the employee purposely do it to entrap the employer? Or did they just do it to make a recording of the meeting just for their own record? Um, the extent of the employee's blameworthiness, so was, did the employee know that they shouldn't record the meetings or did they lie about recording it because if they did that adds to the extent of the misconduct? Also what is being recorded, so is it confidential information, was it somebody else's personal information or is it literally just a note of a disciplinary record for their own, their own purposes? And also the evidence of the attitude of the employer. So like you were saying, James, about the disciplinary policy. So had the employer been really clear about covertly recording, had they made it clear that it's not, to be, you know, it's not, it's not permitted in the circumstances or any circumstances, and also if you do do it, is it an act of misconduct or is it an act of gross misconduct?
0: Okay. Um, thanks for that. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. What do you care? think
1: for our clients going forward that they should learn from that? I think going forward what clients need to do is consider how they approach covert recording because unfortunately it does take place in the modern world with mobile phone use and things like that it's very easy for employees to covertly record meetings so really what they should do is set out their position really clearly in their disciplinary policies so if covert recording or recording full stop of meetings is not prohibited make that really clear in your policies that you're not permitted to do that and also consider listing it either as a misconduct or even if you want to try on a gross misconduct, list it as that, as that, but make it really clear to employees that if they do it, it will either be considered a misconduct or a gross misconduct act. Mm.
2: And I think it's probably worthwhile, isn't it, that um, you know, at the end of meetings, potentially getting clients, advising clients to ask whether that the meeting's been recorded and get them to confirm yes or no because obviously then if you've got your lying element involved then
1: it becomes a bigger issue doesn't it? Oh completely yeah I 100% agree Ange. I think that's a really good point as well
0: Or you could ask them at the beginning Yeah You mm. could say just just to make it clear you are you know, are you recording this? Yeah. If you do record it then that's potentially post-misconduct Yeah so, Yeah because so yeah, like know. you
1: say you've got both the fact that they are recording it against the policy but also if they then lie and have recorded it you've got that act of misconduct as well Mm.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, for that Caroline. No
1: problem. So, Ange, hmm.
0: um, you've got a case about um, disability discrimination.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, again, this is another Employment Appeals Tribunal decision that's come about quite recently, and raises some interesting issues, and it's obviously caused quite a bit of debate um, amongst us guys internally. So, this is a Section 15 case, as we sort of refer to them. So, you've obviously got you notion of direct discrimination under the Equality Act, indirect discrimination, harassment and then this quirk in relation to disability discrimination of section 15 discrimination which is another limb. Um, This case is Balde, if I'm saying that correctly, versus Church's Housing Association of Dudley and District. So section 15 discrimination um, in summary is where an employer treats an employee or applicant, and less favourably or unfavorably because of something arising in consequence of the employee's disability. And secondly, that the employer cannot show objective justification for that treatment. So we are seeing more of these cases arising, or sort of certainly more considerations in this area. So, in terms of the brief facts in respect to this specific case, um, the employee was employed on a six-month probationary period. At the end of the six-month probationary period, she was dismissed, or failed probation, for a number of concerns and considerations in relation to her her conduct. So, she was a support worker for the the, the charity which dealt with vulnerable adults. So, as a support worker, the employer concluded that there had been a number of serious concerns in relation to her conduct. Not least things like she was loaning money to vulnerable adults, her tone in emails and text messages was considered to be inappropriate. So quite a few, on the face of it, ostensibly quite serious concerns for somebody performing that role with vulnerable, a vulnerable client group. She did not, at the point of her failed probation, raise any issues in relation to disability. Subsequently she was offered the right to appeal and at the appeal she raised issues in relation to her mental health that she'd not previously made the employer aware of at all. So she effectively said that because of these mental health issues she was unguarded in the way that she dealt with people so she could sometimes behave inappropriately, tone would be taken out of context, those kind of concerns that she attributed to her mental health condition. Employer didn't overturn its appeal and didn't make any further investigations in relation to the facts that she was giving in respect of her mental health condition. So they upheld the decision on the basis that her conduct was just seemingly on the face of, you know, entirely inappropriate for somebody performing the role that she performed. Question then comes about as to actually knowledge in respect of disability an employer must have for a, for a disability discrimination claim to succeed the employer must have actual or constructive knowledge that the employee concerned is disabled. So they can't turn a complete blind eye to it and bury their head in the sand, but there's got to be something that pins them with the knowledge of disability. Question then is, at the point of dismissal in this case, at the point of failed probation, she has never raised the issue of her mental health at all. She only raises it as appeal. So we then turn to the question of actually, Does it matter, is it potentially giving the cause of action, where at the point of dismissal we're not aware, but at the point of appeal, so she's already left employment at that point, that we're then pinned with potential knowledge of a disability. The EAT conclude that actually it does, so it does matter, it does potentially give rise to a cause of action. So potentially the fact that we're pinned with knowledge at appeal, then connects that appeal process to the dismissal, and potentially gives rise to a cause of action. So because she is saying that her behaviours and the things for which we dismissed her, or part and parcel of the reason why we dismissed her, arise from her mental health condition, uh, then potentially a section 15 unfavourable treatment in consequence of her disability claim can arise. It's an interesting one, and it's one that I think we potentially, in the past, would have advised differently in respect of, insofar as, uh, to most people's mind, it is to do with what, or was previously, with what is in your mind at the point of dismissal. What does that dismissal officer know when they choose to make that decision to, di- to dismiss? Uh, but she successfully founded a claim on the basis of that, which has now been remitted to be reheard by by another, another tribunal on its facts. So, knowledge and disability, I think, changes, or our approach to it is potentially going to change in light of of this decision. And actually, what the employer should have done at appeal when she raises the issue is probably looked into it quite a lot further and would potentially have had to have got medical evidence or to consent to get a GP report, all that kind of stuff that um, we would potentially be advising them to do now in light of this decision interesting little quirk on it as well which is um different than what we possibly would have expected um the tribunal the eat rely wholly on her account of her disability so the fact that she makes that causal connection between the disability and these behaviors being potentially attributable to it um they don't seem to seek to really question that it relies purely on her her making the connection which i think is Slightly concerning in terms of the decision-making process as
0: well. Yeah, no, I agree because I suppose um, a lot of a lot of employees will 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 say almost anything when they're Mm -hmm. when they're in a a, a, you know a a meeting or an appeal meeting to try and um, excuse their behaviours. And I think that I, I I picked up on that as well. The fact that the EAT just said, well, yeah, if the employee says they're disabled there's your evidence of disability, mm. I think is something that I pretty fundamentally disagree with, to mm. be honest. I mean, it's got to be, there has to be more to it than that. You can't just accept what they say on face value. Um, there has to be some kind of medical report yeah. or evidence mm-hmm. to, to support that. Otherwise, employees will be saying many different things. to try And, get them and
2: I think probably in light of, in, in respect to this particular case... Had the employer have sought to investigate that further at the point of appeal, mm-hmm. then we would potentially be in very different territory, uh, not least because we would then would have established whether there was definitely that connection in respect of her behaviours or otherwise, and may well have then be able to present a case for objective justification, which is obviously you can objectively justify this particular form of section fifteen discrimination, actually in light of her role they may well have been able to do that, but Mm -hmm. with a wealth of more information to base that upon. And I suspect it may well have gone a different way had they have taken those Mm. steps.
1: I also think it's interesting as well that she brought it at appeal stage, and if we're now saying to clients, if she brings that up, or he or she brings that up at appeal stage, we need to stop, investigate, look at medical position. From a time limit aspect, Mm -hmm. that calls into question as well the tribunal claims, because obviously generally speaking, they've got three months from the date of termination or three months from the date of the discriminatory act to bring their tribunal claims. If they're waiting for the appeal to conclude, and they mm. obviously have to protect their position and put the claim in, and you've still got the appeal process ongoing with medical information being sought, because we know how difficult it can be to get quick medical reports, that's going to also well, tie into the tribunal process, isn't a, it? Because potentially, again, if if you did end up
2: overturning an mm-hmm. appeal, you've got to potentially lag of time between yeah. dismissal and potential reinstatement where you're going to have to uh, reinstate and reinstate pay in the interim period yeah. so it's lots of considerations
0: it's a useful reminder isn't it that the appeal is absolutely part of the process mm-hmm. I think a lot of employers look at it as like a box ticking exercise but it's, it's much more than that it's still, mm. it's still central to everything I think as well the other concern for employers is this it's yet another example of employees linking what appears to be Sort of random misconduct or poor mm. performance to medical conditions that, on the face of it, sound like they have nothing to do with what they've been accused of, but being able to make that causal link and then and then succeeding with claims. Yeah, I think the key, isn't it, is that actually when someone says, "Well, I've got a medical condition and it's caused me to act in this particular way," it, the key is just not to ignore that. You've mm. got to, yeah. you've got to properly turn your mind to it yeah and particularly when you're it.
2: talking about from a client's perspective in this case somebody who's in probation in yep. then been there you know only six months and yep. actually potentially having to go through quite a lot more considerations before you can form a view as to what on the face of it is seemingly completely inappropriate behavior for somebody in the role Absolutely. that you've been employed to undertake
0: yeah key to take advice isn't it and just yep. just be really careful in those mm-hmm. situations Okay, I think um, I've drawn the short straw with this one because I get to talk about holiday pay and holiday rights, um, a subject which is literally never out of the headlines. Um, Just recently we had a decision on um, whether voluntary overtime should be included in the calculation of holiday pay, Um, but this comes at holiday rights from a slightly different angle. Um, The attention here is in relation to how much leave someone's entitled to if they work irregular hours. Um, or only work part of the year. So a typical zero hours or term time employee is what we're talking about here. Um, And the case is called Harper Trust and Brazel, um, heard very recently by the Court of Appeal. Um, And it's potentially quite a wide reaching decision. Um, And one I think that a lot of people will find fairly counterintuitive because on the face of it, it doesn't seem to make much sense. The first thing to point out is that the decision only affects employees engaged under permanent contracts who work part of the year, so as I say, term time workers, seasonal workers or those on zero hour contracts. It doesn't directly comment on zero hour staff who are not retained by their employer in between periods of work and it also doesn't affect what you'd call normal part time workers, You know, the sort of people who work you know, Monday to Wednesday every, every, every week of the year. So, just start with a few basics, which I'm sure most people will be aware of. Um, So, holiday entitlement is directed by the working time regulations, which state that a worker is entitled to receive 5.6 weeks' leave every year. And Regulation 16 sets out what should be paid for that leave. In general terms, it says a worker should receive a week's pay for a week's leave. And if someone does not have normal hours of work, for example, if they're a zero-hours worker, The way that holiday pay is calculated is to take a 12 week average of the previous 12 weeks in which they worked. Um, Just a little note there, that reference period is gonna change to 12 months come April next year. Now the question that often arises for people who don't have normal hours of work is well how do you calculate how much holiday they're entitled to in the first place? So one way to do this would be to multiply working hours by 12.07%. Um, the reason for that is the 12.07% is actually how much leave a full-time worker is entitled to during the course of a year. Um, so the general approach which is recommended by ACAS is that you take how much time they've worked in hours, you multiply that by 12.07% and that gives you how much holiday someone's accrued every time they've been in work. And that pro-rating accru- approach has been used for a long time and approved in quite a number of European court decisions. So um, Mrs Brazel comes along um, and she was a teacher um, at one of the schools that was run by the Harper Trust and she was employed on a permanent um, zero hours contract to work during term time only. Um, She would normally work um, between 32 and 35 weeks of the year um, and she would be paid holiday in three separate sections, one in the summer, one in the winter and one in the spring. Um, and every time she was paid holiday, what the school would do is, they would look back at that particular term, see how she'd worked, times that by 12.07%, and then pay that in holiday pay. Um, so Mrs Brazel didn't agree with that. She submitted an employment tribunal claim saying that the 12.07 approach bears no calculation to that calculation, which is set out in the working time regulations, which instead just talks about taking average earnings over a 12-week reference period, I'm paying that. Um, She said, actually, if you use that 12-week reference period and take an average of that, then her holidays pay would actually come out at around about 17.5% of her earnings, as opposed to 12.07%. So she put a claim in and the employment tribunal said, well, that doesn't sound right to us because then you'd get paid more than um, employees who are full-time which can't be right. So her claim was rejected at the employment tribunal. She then appealed to the EAT, and the EAT actually upheld the appeal, saying that the tribunal had got it wrong in cap and get holiday pay at 12.07%. And they said there's no requirement in the working time regulations to prorate holiday for part-time employees in that particular way. Um, even if it meant they were treated more favourably, there's no law to stop that. So surprisingly enough, um, the school didn't agree and they appealed and we end up in the Court of Appeal um, and actually what happened there is that Unison got involved on behalf of Mrs Brazel because they said actually there's a bigger point of principle here to be decided that it can affect lots and lots of people. This isn't just about the specific issues in this particular case. So, at the Court of Appeal, um, the Trust drew attention to the fact that by adopting Mrs. Brazel's method, as I mentioned, she'd get 17.5% of her earnings as holiday pay compared to 12.07%. Um, they argued, as you'd imagine, that as she worked fewer weeks during the standard year than a full time employee, it doesn't make any sense for her to receive more holiday pay than they did. Um, However, despite the fact that the calculation method suggested by Mrs Brazel, this this 12-week average for 5.6 weeks holiday per year could produce bizarre results, the Court of Appeal said, well actually, there's nothing in the working time regulations that require you to prorate holidays. It just says you're entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday per year as a worker. So that's what she's entitled to. So Mrs Brazel is entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday per year. And that's calculated by using a 12-week average. So, bizarre.
1: And she's ended up with more favourable treatment.
0: She's ended up with much more favourable treatment. Much much more favourable treatment. And I think that's what a lot of people will struggle with. Mm. um, Because actually, what's clear now is that for a permanent zero-hours part-year worker, their holiday pay is calculated by using the 12-week reference period. But what's less clear is how many days or hours that should be paid for, because there's two parts of a calculation of holiday pay, isn't it? The first part is, well, how much holiday are they entitled Mm -hmm. to? And the second part is, well, what's the pay for that holiday? Mm -hmm. I think the second part is really straightforward. I don't think anyone disagrees with the way to calculate the amount of pay is to take a 12-week average. Yeah. That makes sense, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is how you arrive at how much holiday they accrue in the first mm. place.
1: And also, is this going to be a floodgates mm. argument then for other people who don't fall within the finding of this case, but who are also other part-time workers, other casual workers, who may try to say, well, shouldn't the same apply to us?
0: That's absolutely part of it. I, mean, I think the court did go out of the way to stress this is just relating to someone in the exact circumstances of misappraisal, mm. so a parent employee but on a zero hours contract but actually i think that's still quite a few people mm. Still so in this day and age you know you've got the whole gig economy yeah where lots of people are engaged on, on that mm. sort of contract care workers care workers in retail yeah. industry hospitality. hospitality yeah
1: yeah a lot of people fall within that bracket don't absolutely
0: they? i think what we've got now is a big gray area in relation to how you calculate holiday pay for the holiday entitlement sorry got it Got to make sure yeah. you get those two things mixed up. Yeah. The pay bit's easy, the entitlements, that I think is tricky for people. So the big question now, I think, is, well, if everyone, if every zero-hours employee is entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday, what's a week? What does that mean for someone who has no set hours? Mm. How do you calculate that for someone with no set hours? I don't think there's any easy answer to that. I mean, part of, part of me thinks, actually... Do you still use the 12.07% to calculate the entitlement? Because, you know, how else do you arrive at a figure for someone who doesn't work regular hours?
1: Mm, I think probably, yeah, because without proper guidance from the courts and the tribunals on that point, you're left in that sort of remit to only really be able to use that at this moment in time, unless an appeal is made further up to the Supreme Court and we get further guidance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think an appeal is... I would like to think it's almost inevitable because mm. there is now this massive grey area, um, and it has to be in everyone's best interest for, for, to get clarity from somewhere. Because, of course, the other alternative is I think which the judge tries to do in this case is just push it back to Parliament and say, Look, you, you draft the legislation, mm. you came up with the working time regulations, you're the ones who haven't put anything in there about prorating. Maybe you should actually do something about that. But they're busy with other things at the minute. Yeah. That's it from us for this time. I hope you found our review of these three cases informative. I'd like to thank uh, Caroline and Ange for joining me today. Uh, And I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you and goodbye.